Good evening. My name is Tommy Magara Sharp, and I have attended Boston Avenue uh, since we moved to Tulsa almost seven years ago. I'm a lifelong United Methodist, and I grew up attending St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Carrollton, Georgia, part of the North Georgia Conference. Uh, and as a child, I attended the United Methodist Summer Camp, Camp Glisten in Dahlonega, Georgia, in the North Georgia Conference. And I served as an officer for my local United Methodist Youth Fellowship Program. I also volunteered with the United Methodist Conference Council on Youth Ministry as a young adult. And I went on to become a youth minister at a United Methodist Church. So I'm pretty Methodist. Uh, uh, because of all these deeply United Methodist experiences, I frequently refer to myself as a Methodist nerd. And uh, if you're a Methodist nerd in North Georgia, you might find yourself thinking to yourself, I would like to consider going to seminary at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, which as a young kid coming out of college was just what I did, and that is how I know our guest here tonight, uh, Dr. Roberta Bondi. I began my seminary career in 1998, and at that time one of the entry courses at Candler School of Theology for first year MDiv students was the legendary CT301, The Introduction to the History of Christian Thought, Part One. It had a reputation that preceded it uh, due to the amazing team of professors that led the course, the late Dr. Bill Mallard and Dr. Roberta Bondi. The course set the tone for the entire seminary experience. Driven by the amazing personalities and scholarship of the two professors. I have never before or since been in a large lecture class that was a more engaging learning experience. And it was uh, these masterful guides who led us through the pantheon of early Christian thinkers. The authors of the Gospels, Paul, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, Origen, Tertullian, Augustine, Julian of Norwich, and so forth, all the way up through the medieval period. We hashed out the early church's controversies, such as how can Jesus be both fully divine and fully human at the same time? Or how can one God be three persons? These are questions that people still struggle with today. The class met early in the morning with a room full of tired students many of whom were part, oh, and tired professors, <laughs> many of whom were part or full-time pastors, or, in my case, serving on a church staff. Each class session woke us up, beginning with a heart, hearty rendition of the old hymn, Give Me That Old-Time Religion. <laughs> but they substituted in the the part that says, it was good enough for so-and-so, they substituted whoever we were reading that week into the blank. Uh, and at one point they actually said, it wasn't good enough for Tertullian, or Arian, okay, Arius, yeah. All right, yeah, she, I would have flunked that question, I guess. All right, um, it's been almost 20 years, so. You know. um, professors Mallard and Bondi understood uh, that this ancient material 
could come to life for people who were going through the first semester of seminary, which is a very grueling experience. Those, I see some nodding heads in the room. Uh, people who are struggling to, to discover who they are uh, can find in these ancient texts uh, some comfort. Uh, and they seem to understand this, that the process of theological education uh, could use uh, some guidance. And uh, the period of intense discernment that you're going through in that moment in your life uh, could, uh, could be informed through these, through these thinkers. There's one particularly striking moment uh, in that first seminary that stood, stands out to me uh, with Dr. Bondi. We had spent the semester unpacking the different perspectives of ancient thinkers on such theological concepts as the doctrine of God, the understanding of Christ's incarnation. But in one particular class, Dr. Bondi reflected with the class about her own theological understanding of these major concepts, revealed in part through her book, To Love as God Loves, which is set up as a conversation with the early church uh, desert fathers and mothers. I remember her explaining the idea of atonement in a unique way that stood out to me and still um, makes a lot of sense to me today. And atonement is one of these very divisive ideas in the church. Uh, the idea of how does God bring reconciliation to human beings through Jesus Christ? So of course, there are a lot of different answers to that question. I remember the way she explained it was that atonement is not about God fixing broken sinners, but it is about the removal of shame from good human beings created in God's image. This struck me as a much healthier understanding of an important idea in Christianity than what I had grown up with and has made a difference in my life ever since. So I'd like to take a moment to thank Dr. Bondi for the ways her work has made a difference, not just for me, but for generations of students, ministers in the United Methodist Church and other denominations and Methodist nerds all over the world. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Roberta Bondi. That was awfully nice music, wasn't it? That was uh, I, the first hymn that we, uh, that, that we sang together, and this is one of those things I'm going to tell you, it's not particularly edifying, but I can't keep my mouth shut. Uh, the, it was about the, um, the cloud, you know, leading the, the uh, uh, children of Israel through the desert to the promised land for 40 years and 40 nights. And... Uh, Whenever I, I, I run into that reference now, I remember a conversation that I had with my mother that, uh, that is a good illustration of how we tend to understand scripture from where we are in our own lives. Uh, and mother was doing the vacation, not the vacation, the, the disciples Bible study, remember that? And uh, she was about 90 at the time. And, uh, so she had comments about what, you know, what they were studying. And I remember talking to her uh, at, at one point, and she said, Roberta, I need to ask you something. I said, okay, Mom, what? And she said, what were they doing fooling around in the desert for 40 years? <laughs> Just fooling around, not doing a lick of work. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I'm not sure, Mama. 
Uh, but, you know, God was leading them. Proof, she said, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, dear, it was great. Okay, the time that I have spent with you all since, since I got here and I started meeting with you, which was only yesterday morning, but it feels much longer than that. Uh, and I, I mean that in a good sense, not in a, not in a bad sense. You know, I feel at home here. Uh, we've been talking about what, it, what Christianity is really about, what is asked for from us, and how do we give what's asked for if we're able to do it. And uh, yesterday, we talked about um, looking at the uh, people that I study in the early church who are the founders of monasticism. We talked uh, about uh, uh, the fact that it is love that is at the very center of what it means to be a Christian, that what we are called to do is what Jesus called the rich young ruler to do, and that is to love God with all our hearts and our neighbor as ourselves. Well, that sounds fairly simple, you know, except until we start trying to love our neighbor and, and then we find that, well, how do you love somebody you don't really care for very much, you know? And, and then after we get through that problem, the problem is how do we actually love God? You know, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. How do we love God? Now, the early monks that I spent my life with, who were my own teachers uh, and are continue to be my teachers, they were aware that loving God is not something all that easy, just as loving our neighbor is not something all that easy. It's not just a matter of of saying, okay, I love my neighbor, okay, I love God, now what comes next? You know, if we truly want to love our neighbor, what does that take? That's what we spent yesterday looking at, a little bit tomorrow, this morning. But it's also hard to love God. And that's for this, I taught at Candler for a while before I realized how hard this was for my students, all of whom were going into ministry, or almost all of whom were going into ministry, or except for the ones that were going to uh, wash out in some way or other, uh, or quit, um, but that, um, that they had trouble loving God. And I thought a lot about that in the light of the work that I'd done, and and it, it became clearer and clearer to me that I had always had trouble loving God, and a lot of it was for the same reasons that they were having trouble. And I have to tell you um, that uh, the, the beginning stages of this, and maybe the end stages of this for, for at, at the same time, uh, for me, were... Uh, was, were rooted in my early childhood uh, experiences of, uh, of who God was. Uh, my mother and father, uh, I grew up in New York City until I was about 11 when my parents were divorced, but uh, my mother married a hard-boiled Manhattanite, 
uh, he didn't believe in uh, anything having to do with religion and was very uh, cynical about all religious people. And uh, my mother was a Southern Baptist who didn't believe in arguing with her husband. Uh, this made a kind of difficult balance in our home life. Now, another thing about it was that uh, my father was also very, very strict. My father was, he was, he was too young when they got married. He was only 18, and uh, my mother was a, a, a bit older. Uh, but he, he, he believed that the, the role of the father in the home was to be strict and demand perfect obedience and get it every time, and, uh, and that his children were going to be perfect by God, you know. They were going to be the top of their class in school and all that stuff. By the way, I'm, I, I, didn't, I managed to react to all that by just kind of giving up. And uh, um, as has been said about me, I ended up graduating in the bottom 10% of my high school graduating class. Uh, so his method wasn't entirely successful. But... Uh, <laughs> But my, my mother would handle this whole situation where she, would, she wouldn't argue with my father, but she would take us to Union County, Kentucky, where she grew up, where my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-aunts and uncles and, and uh, aunts and uncles and first cousins and second cousins and, and third cousins and 17th cousins squared, you know, uh, where, where they all lived, and, and uh, where a large portion of them went to my mother's church she grew up in, which was Pond Fork Baptist Church out by the Great Ditch. So we'd go every year for revival. And so my, my experience of religion then was what I got in this situation of going to a Southern Baptist revival. So the... I would hear the same thing every year because that was the nature of the revival, right? You know, it, it, what it's supposed to do is scare the poo out of you, you know, and until you repent and and stuff. So there'd be the same sermons every year. Uh, the preacher would start, you know, and he he would uh, uh, the the deacons had already prayed, the hymns had been sung, all that stuff. You know, ladies were fanning away with the uh, funeral home fans, and uh, and he would start off slow, and he would work up to it and work up until pretty soon he was shouting about how absolutely rotten everybody there was. You know that that we were all just a bunch of sinners and no good to anybody, and and God could hardly stand the sight of us. But because God was so good, he let us know that all we had to do was to believe he loved us. And, and if we didn't believe he loved us, he would send us to hell forever. <laughs> now, if you think this is a theology that is peculiar and has gone forever, I will tell you that it hasn't been very long since the sign on Highway 85 uh, the great big billboard 
was taken down. It was, and I think that's probably because it, it just wore off, you know. But it was uh, a great big billboard, navy blue, a dark blue, uh, with a cross in the middle, you know, just kind of thin cross that went from side to side and up and down. And at the top, I swear it said, only believe God loves you. And then pretty much at the bottom it said, or he'll send you to hell forever. <laughs> you know. Uh, now, a combination of my earthly father uh, and his being so strict and, uh, and always letting his children know how um, uh, inadequate they were uh, to the task of being his children. Uh, but that was my earthly father. So then I'd go to the revival and I'd hear about my heavenly father and I figured I, would, I could fill, easily fill in what I didn't hear, which was my heavenly father was like my earthly father, only 10 times bigger. You know. So God was somebody I was really afraid of and whom I thought of as spending God's whole life and so far as you can say God has a life, was spent sort of trailing along behind me, keeping a list of all the things I did wrong. Uh, now, you would be surprised to know how many students at Candler finally would admit to that, that that's also the idea that they had. Usually they didn't admit it in class, they admitted it on paper. And uh, I didn't care where they admitted it because they needed to admit it for the same reason I did, so we could start working on that. You know, this is not what you call either a true or a wholesome notion of who God is, is it? Nor is it a, um, does, it's, it's not a lovable God. If you can love that God, probably you should get into counseling and... <laughs> Make an appointment as soon as you get home tonight. You know, don't wait a minute longer than you have to, you know. Because what it felt like and what it so often felt like in churches, and certainly the churches that I knew as a child, and then I knew Methodist churches when I was in junior high and high school, but what it felt like was that I was being told, and everybody was being told, you're supposed to love God even though you're not very lovable yourself. Okay, this really makes a problem because I don't know that it's possible to love God when you look at things that way. So if we are to love God, what are we going to do about this? Well, it seems to me that what we need to do is to take seriously looking at the whole issue of does God love us and in what way does God love us? How do we do this? How do you believe God loves you? Now, probably if I asked you, which I'm not going to, but I'm going to tell you that I'm thinking about it, is uh, if I asked you right now, um, do you believe God loves you? Probably everybody in here would be, yeah, of course I do. I mean, I learned Jesus loves me, this I know, from the time I was in the uh, Nursery school, you know, of course I believe God loves me. It says it all through the Bible. I hear it all the time. God loves you, God loves you. God. Of course I believe God loves you. Well, 
It's one thing to say you believe it, and it's a, a belief you carry around in your head. The other thing is to believe it in your heart. You know, it's easy to say God loves me, but the question is, do I really believe that? You know, who is this God that I'm called to believe? You know, uh, this, this is not such an easy one, you know, but uh, especially if you've gone through Pond Fork Church, Pond Fork Baptist Church's uh, uh, revivals. But it seems like as a result, maybe, of the Protestant Reformation, that Protestantism in the last century for a long time, and still in the North Georgia mountains at least, teaches as one of its basic tenets that human beings are totally unworthy of God's love. That we are all sinners, that we are all sinners in the eyes of God, and that, uh, that the only reason God loves us is because God is so good. But we are totally unworthy of that God, and God looks at us and says, they aren't worthy, but I love them anyway. Okay, now I want to tell you a small story. Um, because of the fact that we, as Christians, believe in the Incarnation, we believe that it's possible to use uh, human examples, human experience, to talk about what God is like, right? So I tell you this story. Supposing that I go home on Tuesday, which I fully intend to, and, uh, and I am met at the airport by my daughter, which I fully intend to, but I may not be. But supposing that she does come and takes me home, and I know Richard will be there when I get home to the condo in Atlanta. And I will be so excited to see Richard and, and I will just be so happy that I'm going to see Richard. And I'm going, I'll have my suitcases, too many to count. And, uh, and I'll get off at the front door and I'll ride the elevator up. And I'll get my key out to open the door. And Richard will open the door. And he will look at me. And he will say, oh, Roberta, I love you so much in spite of who you are. You know, we're happy to say God loves us in spite of who we are. But what do you think I'd do if Richard greeted me at the door and said, Roberta, I love you in spite of who you are, where everything implied in that is, I love you because I am so good and noble. And I am particularly good and noble because of the fact that I love a worm like you. You know, it, what would come after that would not be a pretty sight, you know. Uh, so the first thing we need to do, I think, when we start talking about God's love for us is realize how much junk we carry around with us that we think about God that we maybe we learned in church, maybe we read it somewhere, you know, but maybe we learned it from parents, but there is so much junk that would really tell us that, well, no, God doesn't love us. And to tell us that we're totally unworthy in the sight of God, um, totally corrupted by sin, fortunately, there are not a whole lot of Methodist churches that 
they're real strong on this anymore. But there are a lot of people my age and maybe a bit younger who, who have this pretty well drummed into them anyway. You know, the first thing is to realize that we have that junk in our head and say, wait a second, that's just crazy. You know, now it'd be nice if it were that easy to get rid of it. It isn't, but it's a good place to start. Well, the next thing that I do when I, when I or did do when I worked with my students was to really start looking hard at some of the things that were part of the monastic tradition that they taught. And there were some wonderful passages that I will uh, share with you tonight because they do give us other ways to think about our relationship with God that makes it easier for us to love God because it takes away the fear that we have. Well, there are um, three metaphors from the material from about the fourth and the sixth century that I still find very moving and are important to me and are important to many other people I know too. The first one is found in um, a, a group of homilies from the first fourth century called the Macarian homilies. That's because they were written by somebody named Macarius, uh, but um, nobody knows exactly who that was. But he seemed to have had his own community, and this was characteristic of the community. But he's talking to uh, the people in his community, and he is exhorting them to pray and to not be afraid when they pray and to know that God hears them when they pray. And so he says to them, you've got to realize that God is like a mother with her baby. The baby is there, he says, lying on the floor on a blanket, and the baby starts to cry, and there's the mother in the room with the baby. He says, the mother can't help but pick up the baby when the baby cries. What the mother wants more than anything in the world is to pick that baby up. Can't help it. It's a physical bond between the mother and the baby. And that, the author of these homilies says, that's the way God relates to us. God sees us like God can't help but respond when we cry, when we call out to God. And God responds with love like a mother responds to her baby when her baby I just find this an incredibly helpful and moving metaphor and, and good to think about. Uh, now, the second one is almost the opposite of that one in that this one is also found from the fourth century, but it, it's found in, um, in a series of hymns. There was a, a, a Syrian hymn writer named Ephraim, who's probably the greatest of the hymn writers the church has ever had. And he was the choir master uh, at, his, at a, his church in Syria. Uh, and one of the jobs that he had was to write uh, hymns for his choir for, uh, for all the liturgical events of the year. So he, he wrote, uh, you know, every year he'd write a, a song, uh, a, a hymn for the choir to sing uh, uh, for um, Advent. And then he would write another hymn for Christmas 
and then he'd write one for Epiphany and so forth through the church year. And he'd write a new one every single year. And these hymns have survived. And they are, uh, they are really very interesting. We couldn't sing them in church because there was a different idea of uh, uh, what church music was in those days. Uh, but they still have some most wonderful material in it. Well, there's a Christmas hymn where on Christmas morning he has his choir singing to the baby Jesus, to the real baby Jesus, not a grown-up Jesus, but baby Jesus. And, and right in the middle of this hymn, he has, he addresses little Jesus and he says, look at you, Jesus, look at you, baby. There you are lying there and you hold out your arms to anybody who comes to you. Rich man, poor man, a young person, an old person, a good person, a bad person, it doesn't make any difference. Babies do that, and you are the baby among us, he says. And then he concludes this passage by saying, you were so glad to see everybody. God, how did you so come to love human beings? How did you so come to love human beings? And if you think of a little baby who's just old enough to really start responding to people, smiling at whoever comes, smiles at them, they'll smile back, holds out their arms to be picked up, they don't, don't, they don't care who it is that's going to do it, just somebody, pick me up, here I am. I'm so glad to see you. You know, I, I, this is a wonderful image for me, too. And one thing about the image that is so wonderful is the vulnerability of the image. You know, we, 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 we've got God of majesty and might and, and king of the universe and all that stuff, but that's not this baby that comes among us to be one of us. This, this child comes... This baby comes and is vulnerable to the things that all people are vulnerable to and all babies are vulnerable to. Now, that, that's an expression of God's love of us, of God's love, that is almost more than I can take in. Uh, I, I probably first read this passage, I think, about 1967, but I, I, it's, it just stays new in my mind. Uh, are you all f familiar with icons that they use in Orthodox churches? P the pictures they use in Orthodox churches? I, ge I guess not. Well, there's one picture that is, uh, that is, is, um, that is often seen. Uh, the thing with the, with the pictures in Orthodox churches is that they all preach little lessons, but they also are meant to be windows into, the, into the, the spiritual world. And one of these pictures that I've seen, and it's, it's reproduced over and over and over, is a picture of baby Jesus sitting on, mother, on Mary's lap. And in this picture, Mary has her head bent over the baby, and the baby is looking up at her. And I think, 
God has come among us and entrusted God's self to, to us human beings. This is, is an expression of God's love, and it's worth the risk to God to do this. Does that make sense? You know, you watch, you'll see this icon around if you, if you look for it. Uh, it's actually, I think it's originally Greek, but it's, it's also Russian, and you, you find it lots of places. Uh, okay, so these are two, two, uh, two things to contemplate when we're thinking about does God love us and what is the way in which God loves us is first of all the McCarrigan homilies where the author of those homilies say God is like a mother who can't help but pick up her baby. And then the second one is Ephraim who says God is that baby that comes to us at Jesus, as Jesus at, at Christmas time and welcomes everybody. He never says a thing about worthiness or unworthiness. That's not part of either of these images, is it? I mean, the whole question of worthiness is just totally absent. And one thing we might uh, think about as we think about those two images is uh, the way parents generally are with their babies. Uh, it, it, I think of mothers, but I know fathers are also like this. One, one of the things that's been a delight for me to, to be around uh, Tommy and his two children the last two days, his children adore him. And he is obviously a wonderful father who is teaching his children about love. And whether he intends to or not, he is teaching his children about God the Father, if that's what he's like as a human father. Okay, another thing. I'm, I'm going to skip some of this because we don't have a whole lot of time. But let me say something about uh, one other thing that is not, it's in the ancient material, but it's really, really in medieval material, which we haven't talked about, but I'll tell you this anyway. And that is the image of, uh, of God as lover. God is lover. Not God as parent, but God is lover. God who loves us in the way a lover delights in his beloved. Uh, now, the thing that's the key here is the word delight that God's love is a love that delights in what God has made. And God is, loves us in a way that doesn't just say, well, I love them. <laughs> yeah, they're mine, and I love them. But God, who loves us in a nutty sort of way. You know, there is a book by a man named Anthony Bloom, who was the Russian Orthodox Archbishop of uh, Great Britain uh, for a long time. He's dead now. But he, he wrote some books, and the best of his books is a little book called Beginning to Pray. And he says, he names it Beginning to Pray because we're always beginning to pray. We're always learning how to pray. So that's why he calls it this. In the introduction to that book, he has this most amazingly wonderful idea. 
he says, he just suggests, supposing that the way God sees us normally is the way we see each other when we fall in love. See, we're, we're used to thinking about the fact that, well, uh, you know, we fall in love, teenagers fall in love, uh, grown-ups fall in love, and, and then uh, after a while it kind of wears off and then ordinary life uh, begins at that point. But that crazy part of love is only for a little bit, you know. Uh, Anthony Bloom suggests that when God sees us, he sees us the way we see our beloveds when we fall in love. He is turning the whole thing upside down and saying, our real self is the self we see and are seen by uh, in this situation of love. Isn't that a great idea? And it makes me think about um, when I fell in love with Richard. Now, I hope I don't tell anybody uh, more than they can handle in the way of embarrassment or anything. But, uh, but I do remember when I first fell in love with Richard about 40 years ago. Um, the first time I saw Richard, I thought he was the most beautiful creature I had ever seen in my whole life. He had dark, dark, dark brown curly hair, soft-looking curly hair, and a beard, and green eyes, and he was just gorgeous, you know. I remember one time I saw him in, in white shorts and a, a turquoise-colored T-shirt and, and moccasins with no socks, and I was just speechless. <laughs> I just vibrated with delight when I looked at Richard. You know, it was just incredible. Now, I remember that was when I was, I was living in South Bend at that point. That's when I was teaching at Notre Dame. And uh, I remember at one point uh, being so crazed that I had a 57 Chevy at the time. I loved my 57 Chevy, but it was hard to shift gears in it. But... Uh, but I remember driving around in the wintertime one time when it must have been like 20 below zero and I had the windows rolled down and I had the radio turned up uh, playing uh, country and western music and I remember uh, thinking, oh, it would be nice if I were the sort of person that could drink beer and throw the cans out the window. <laughs> yeah. Now, you may not feel that this is a, an edifying image, <laughs> but I still think it's a pretty good image for the way that I believe, I've come to believe that God looks at us and responds to us, God's creation, God's beloveds. You know, you think of God driving around in a 55 Chevy, drinking beer, throwing the cans out the window. This is an image of delight and, and love. You can go home and meditate on that one, <laughs> you know. The thing in this issue, though, in, in, in this image that I really want you to get is the idea of delight. Just pure joy in the beloved. 
pure joy, pure delight, that I believe that that is the way God looks at us. God loves us in this way. Now, it's one thing to talk about that with, uh, as an idea, but how could anybody in the right mind ever come to believe that? Well, in their hearts. There is one thing that, that I think that two things, really. If you have been loved and you have loved another person, it makes it easier to imagine that God would love us in this way. But whether you have or not, you won't find out, you won't find this out until you actually engage in prayer. Have to meet God face to face to say, oh, this is actually true. Now, that sounds like a pretty easy accomplishment to just go pray about it, and that's not what I'm saying. Oh, pray about it and your troubles will be over. You know, that's not what I'm, I'm saying. Because if you have had a background, like so many of us have, where in your heart of hearts you're actually afraid of God, you don't necessarily want to sit in God's presence. And this is what I found out about my students uh, when I was teaching all those years. What I sort of finally worked out, I don't know exactly how, uh, to, how to talk to them, uh, I, I will give you the advice that I uh, used to give them because it's still good advice. And that is, if you really, really rather not pray and you realize it's because you either don't like God or you're really scared of God, or both, you're still going to have to do it. But you need to make it easy on yourself. So what I recommend is that you get a kitchen timer and a really comfortable chair, maybe a rocking chair, and set it for five minutes. If you have a dog that you really love, or a cat, it's good to have them close to Find something that you really like to do, like a crossword puzzle or Sudoku or uh, a book you're reading or any sort of handwork you're doing. Take it with you. Sit down in your chair. Set it for five minutes. Set your timer only for five minutes. When you sit down, you say, yulp, yulp. You know, I, I don't really want to be here, but... Uh, I need to find out that you're not who I th I'm afraid you are and that I think you are. So I want to just spend five minutes here, uh, if that's okay with you. And then you sit there and you calm down as far as you can. Uh, you make a, a, a prayer sign. You can li light a candle if you want to. You've already gotten it. You don't get up during the five minutes and go look for it. Uh, make a prayer sign. I, myself, I, I, I like to cross myself before I pray so that I remember that I'm bringing my whole self into my prayer, not just my head. Make your prayer sign, and, and then you sit there, and you do whatever you brought with you for five minutes. And you find out at the end of five minutes you have not been struck down dead. Then the timer goes off, and you uh, look up from your Sudoku, and you say, uh, well, that, that wasn't too bad, God. Um, 
uh, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, I'll, I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> and then you come back the next day and you do the same thing. And you keep doing that until it feels natural. And until you know that God is not going to strike you down and your heart calms enough that you can actually begin to welcome God and find out who God is face to face in your heart so that you, you know, not because somebody's told you and because you're a good person and believe the right things, but you know from your own experience that God does love you in these ways that we've been talking about. Does that make sense? It's not hard. Well, I've had people say, but that's not really prayer. Well, guess what? It really is prayer. And they say, well, you can't do that forever. Well, guess what? You can do that forever. You know, if you have to do that for 10 years before it starts soaking in, what if you lost? You sat there and done Sudoku and petted your cat and, and, you know, maybe you took a cup of coffee in with you or a glass of wine, you know. I don't know. It really is prayer. What you're trying to do is to meet God and find out who God really is as the one who really does love you. So this is what I have to contribute to how, what I think we need to do if we're going to love God, the first thing we have to do is to really come to the decision that God is, in fact, lovable and loves us in return. That's the work of our prayer. That's the real work of our prayer when we start at this point. So, thank you, and I will see some of you tomorrow night, I hope, and we'll talk some more. Uh, I promise not to mention beer cans. I don't promise what else I won't mention, but, uh, but beer cans will not be part of it. So don't tell on me. Okay.